Our gracious Father, we come to you so often, Lord, seeking your peace in the midst of chaos. And Father, whether it is the chaos of the world or our nation or our own lives, you've told us that we can have the peace that passes all understanding to guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. When instead of being anxious, we bring everything to you by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. And so I ask, Father, for your grace. As we seek your peace, I ask that your spirit would teach and guide and lead us as we study your word. I pray that you would, even in this very moment, prepare our hearts and our minds to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke chapter 8 and verse 41. And behold, there came a man named Jairus, and he was a ruler of the synagogue, and he fell down at Jesus' feet and begged him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter about 12 years of age, and she was dying. But as he went, the multitudes thronged him. Now a woman, having a flow of blood for 12 years, who had spent all her livelihood on physicians and could not be healed by any, came from behind and touched the border of his garment, and immediately her flow of blood stopped. And Jesus said, Who touched me? When all denied it, Peter and those with him said, Master, the multitudes throng and press you, and you say, Who touched me? And Jesus said, Somebody touched me, for I perceived power going out from me. Now when the woman saw that she was not hidden, there came trembling, there she came trembling and falling down before him. She declared to him in the presence of all the people the reason she had touched him and how she was healed immediately. And he said to her daughter, Be of good cheer. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone came from the ruler of the synagogue's house saying to him, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher. But when Jesus heard it, he answered him saying, Do not be afraid. Only believe and she will be made well. When he came into the house, he permitted no one to go in except Peter, James, and John, and the father and mother of the girl. Now all wept and mourned for her, but he said, Do not weep, she is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him, knowing that she was dead. But he put them all outside, took her by the hand, and called, saying, A little girl, arise. Then her spirit returned, and she arose immediately, and he commanded that she be given something to eat. And her parents were astonished, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. So last week we studied Jesus casting the demons into the swine and saving a man from a horrible existence. This week we're looking at Jesus healing the woman uh, with the issue or flow of blood and the raising of Jairus' daughter from the dead. Something that I want to notice, I think it's worth our notice, is that Jairus' daughter was 12 years old and the woman had suffered for 12 years. I don't believe that anything is in the Bible by accident and that the girl was born the same year the woman began to suffer. And they had both, they both get their lives back in the same day. So I think that's significant. So I decided to have fun and look into uh, uh, various ways that the number 12 appears in biblical symbolism. 
the number 12 typically represents completeness, uh, such as the 12 tribes of Israel, uh, or it sometimes refers to government, again, like the 12 tribes of Israel or the 12 apostles, uh, and is often uh, related to the power and authority of God. So the number 12 shows up a bunch of times in the planning of the tabernacle and the temple and the execution of the priesthood. Um, not the killing of the priests, but the priests executing their duties as priests. Uh, I just want to be clear, a little clear there. Um, and it shows up in other places, like Jesus was 12 when Mary and Joseph lost him. And, and, and he was in the, in the 12, in the, whatchamacallit, the temple. Uh, other than the number seven, the number 12 is paramount to many of the descriptions we see in the book of Revelation. So why the number 12 here? And I just want to let you know, I stopped there. There are a lot of other ways the number 12 shows up throughout scripture. So why here? Now, it could be a picture of the coming of God's kingdom through Jesus' power and authority. It could be um, the number 12. It could just be the number 12. And God brought them together on the same day for some purpose we are unaware of. Uh, I don't want to read into scripture. I don't want to pretend there's something involving the number 12 here that I don't know. But because I don't believe in accidents, it's there for a reason. We just may not know what it is this side of heaven. As we move into our study today, we are going to see two people with desperate faith. So let's go back to verse 41. And behold, there came a man named Jairus. And he was a ruler of the synagogue, and he fell down at Jesus' feet and begged him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years old, or 12 years of age, and she was dying. But as he went, the multitudes thronged him. Now a woman... Having a flow of blood for 12 years, who had spent all her livelihood on physicians and could not be healed in any way, came from behind and touched the border of his garment, and immediately her flow of blood stopped. So a leader in a synagogue, kind of think of that as the administrator of the synagogue, right? The leader of the synagogue wasn't usually a Pharisee or a Sadducee, wasn't usually a rabbi per se, but they were the person that took care of all the business of the synagogue, right? They were the ones that counted the money, made the deposits. They were the ones that made sure everything was in order, so on and so forth, organized stuff. Uh, but that meant he was an extremely important person and probably pretty well off. Uh, this was a, a position that would have paid fairly well. Um, but he shows his desperation and that he falls at the feet of Jesus and begs. Have you ever begged? Wow. Sorry, I'm going through puberty again. <clears throat> have you ever begged in prayer? I know I have. There's, there have been times where I was so desperate that in my crying out to God, it was, it was begging like... So when, I, when you were young and right, when you have little kids, you probably remember this. When your kid really, really wanted something that you were going to say no to, you did say no, and you were going to continue to say no, please, no, please, no. Um, and why do we say no? Because, you know, we know better. They're asking for something ridiculous or something that would be harmful to them or whatever the case. But that kind of begging, I've begged that way before. 
uh, before God and my mom when I was young um, or you know a few years ago whatever but not only does he do this kind of begging he does it publicly that's great desperation and so Jesus agrees to go with him and as they go the multitude thronged him and this word is it literally means that they choked him you know, so imagine I'm, I'm trying to get out that door and you all just get around me and you block the door so I can't move. That's the word throng here. Now, in this situation, in the midst of this, an unnamed woman, right? We never get her name. She approaches Jesus from behind. She had a flow of blood for 12 years with the hope that she could touch, right? It says the the hem or the fringe, it was the tassels. Right? They would have the four tassels hanging down. That's what she was trying to touch on his garment. And when she did, it worked. Now, you have to consider how desperate she would have been. She was poor. She had no money. Spent it all on physicians for 12 years. Right, A complete outcast in society. Not to mention the health problems that this would cause. Uh, probably anemic. Uh, probably malnourished, probably pale and, and super thin. And, and uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Gaunt? Is that the word I'm looking for? Probably, you know, just sucked in. It would be hard to stay hydrated, all kinds of stuff. You're, you're talking very, very des desperate. And so there's quite the contrast. So you have Jairus, a well-respected member of Jewish society, and she was an outcast. Jairus was some sort of religious leader. She wasn't even allowed to attend synagogue or to go to Shabbat, uh, Sabbath dinner. She wasn't allowed to celebrate any of the feasts. She wasn't allowed to participate in any of the sacrifices in the temple. Right? Nothing. Jairus was married and had a family. For 12 years, she wasn't allowed to go anywhere near her family. Maybe she had a husband. If she did, she doesn't anymore. Um, maybe she had children. If she did, she couldn't, hadn't seen them in 12 years. No Christmas, no Thanksgiving, no birthdays, nothing. Jairus had spent 12 years of joy with his daughter. The woman had spent 12 years of misery. Jairus would have been wealthy, as I mentioned, and she was poor. Yet they both end up at the exact same place. The feet of Jesus. Galatians 3.28, we're reminded that there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. God does not care about our status. He doesn't care about our money. He doesn't care about our background. He doesn't care about any of the differences that we as human beings tend to put so much stock in. He doesn't care if you're white or black or if you are Native American or India Indian. Uh, he doesn't care if what language you speak. He doesn't care what your past religious beliefs are. He doesn't care what your sin is. He doesn't care about any of it. You want to know what he cares about? That we come to the feet of Jesus. 
Now, he cares about that very specifically for those of us who are not saved. Well, us. That's a bad... I'm saved, sorry. For anybody who's not saved, which I hope is none of you, um, but for anybody who doesn't know Christ, that's the only thing he cares about. And Christians have gotten it all turned around, right? We want to try to clean people up and then bring them into the church. And that doesn't work. You ever... You just, just think about the silliness of that, right? We have dogs. And, and, and throughout our entire life, as a married couple and as a family, we have always had dumb dogs. Dumb dogs. It's just the truth. So right now we have two dogs, one that's slightly bigger, uh, Luigi, and one that's slightly smaller, Corsworth. And a couple months ago, it happened twice, and I still don't know why, but a couple months ago, we, would, we always take them out together, typically, and Corsworth would go to do, do his thing, um, and Luigi would walk up next to him, lift a leg, and pee on him. He did it twice. Oh, that was fun. So here's the problem. You got to get the dog that's been urinated upon to the bathtub without making a mess in the house. Well, the problem with that is, is it doesn't work because until we get him under soap and water, he's not going to be clean. So we wrapped him in a towel so nothing would drip. It was just, why do, why do people have animals? She's laughing because she was there. Um, why do people have animals? Animals are kind of gross, except for cats. Cats are perfect. Um, cats? No, how dare you. Right? I, the reason I tell this, this lovely story is we couldn't get him clean till we got him to the bathtub. And then we had to burn the bathtub. But, no, I'm joking. We put that attitude out into the world when we talk about people who need Jesus Christ. Well, oh, so, so you live in sexual sin? Well, once you get rid of your sexual sin, then you can come to church. No. You have a problem with, with alcohol or drugs or, or something like that. You deal with that, then you can come to church. That's not what Jesus did. What did Jesus do? What did Jesus did? Sorry, sorry, I didn't mean to. <laughs> Jesus said, come. And once you come, well, he'll deal with the cleaning of you. He will cleanse you from your sins by his blood. He will cleanse you of your past. He will cleanse you of your failures. He will even cleanse you of some of your successes if they were not good for you or the people around you. But that's why... God invites us. It's all the way back in Isaiah chapter 1. He said, come, let us reason together. And though your sins be as scarlet, I will make them as white as snow. Because only he can do that. So when we're talking to friends, when we're talking to non-believers, when we're talking to the world in general, we have to get rid of this idea that you have to get cleaned up and then come to Jesus. No, come to Jesus and then he will do the cleaning up. Now for the rest of us, we have to, and we're, we're doing the prayer practice, and for those of you who are involved in it, I hope it is a blessing. Um, but one of the things we talked about in the lesson this morning, that if you're doing it, you'll get to watch this week, is that we have to come before God. Uh, what was the phrase? Uh, pray, pray what you got. Is that how that phrase was? Just pray what you got. Right? And so if you come before God and you're rejoicing, then pray what you got. Pray the joy. 
If you come before God and you're miserable and you, you, you hate life or you hate your neighbor or you hate somebody or, or you're angry or you're sad or you're, or you're anxious or depressed or whatever it is, just bring it. Don't try to hide it. Don't try to have some kind of performance. Just bring it. Jairus didn't come up to Jesus and say, Oh, teacher, I am a leader of the synagogues of Israel. I have wealth and power. I can do this, that, and the other thing for you. Please, would you mind coming to my house and doing me a favor? He didn't do that. He fell at his feet and he begged. Because that's what was in him at the moment, was to fall at his feet and beg. The woman couldn't even go that far. All the woman had was this. She reached. No words, no scripture memorized, no proper prayer posture, though being on your knees at the feet of Jesus, I can imagine, is a really good prayer posture. But what did she have? No money, no status, nothing. And all she did was reach out to touch him. And what did he do? He healed her. And we're going to get to, daughter, your faith has made you well in a moment, but that's it. So just bring it. If you got nothing, then lay it down before God. If you think you have everything, lay that down before God. Whatever you've got, that's how you pray. And that's how they sought him. Verse 45. Who touched me? I love this question. Verse 45. Jesus said, who touched me? Well, when all denied it, Peter and those with him said, Master, the multitudes throng and press you. And you say, who touched me? Jesus said, somebody touched me. For I perceived power going out from me. Now the woman saw that she was not hidden. She came trembling and falling down before him. She declared to him in the presence of all the people the reason she had touched him and how she was healed immediately. And he said to her, Daughter, be of good cheer. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Now, there's part of me that thinks Jesus' question is not because he didn't actually know. I mean, we have to keep in mind he is God. Um, he wanted her to confess. And not confess because what she had done was sinful or wrong, but he wanted her to make a public profession. But Jesus' question even drew the ire of Peter and the other, like, what are you talking about who touched you? Look, there's people everywhere. If somebody's like getting in the water. How did I get wet? Look. There's people everywhere. Of course somebody touched you. And Jesus is like, no, somebody specific touched me because power went out from me. When she knew that she had been exposed, she makes this profession of faith. So she told Jesus why she touched him. And you have to imagine the courage that would have taken because the people around her could have dragged her out of town and stoned her for making them all unclean. But Jesus didn't feel that way. He didn't feel like, oh, yeah, you t I'm, a, I'm a rabbi and you touched me, now I'm unclean. He didn't care. He doesn't care if we're unclean when we come to him. Like I said, he's the one that does the cleaning. But this is huge for her. She was only allowed to be outside the city, away from everybody else. Now she crawled her way through a crowd filled with people, touching many of them. And she said, Lord, it was me, and this is why. 
And when this happened, she was professing her faith and testifying to what Jesus had done for her. So I thought about professions of faith for a moment. And I think we have really, I mean, there's a lot, but there's three that I pulled out or that I thought of or that the Lord put on my heart for today. First, we can make a profession of faith for salvation. In Romans 10, 9 through 13, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. A profession of faith for salvation is simple. You believe in your heart, and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you're saved. I love how simple it is. I love how easy it is. I love that it has nothing to do with me. It has nothing to do with you. you, you we don't, don't take what we're reading about here and go, well, what I really need to do is I need to crawl through the crowds of peeper and put, peeper? people and put forth all this effort, and then when I reach out to Jesus, he'll save me. Uh-uh. The only reason she ever got that close is because he allowed it. He knew what was going on. The only reason we ever come is because the Holy Spirit draws us. The only reason we believe is because God gives us a gift of faith. I am not saying we don't have to make a choice, because we do. It would be kind of nice if we didn't, right? Well, just, I'm saved, and I didn't need, I don't even know how, right? No, we have to make the choice. The Holy Spirit convicts us. The gospel is presented to us. God, in that moment, is grabbing at our hearts, and we have to say yes. We have to respond. But it doesn't change that he's the one who saves us. Once we're saved, we can make a profession of faith for identity. Matthew 10, 32 through 33, Jesus said, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. That's one of those scriptures that my job would be so much easier if it wasn't there. Because that scripture speaks truth that we don't get to get around. Are you a follower of Christ? Do you acknowledge that before the world around you? Or do you ever try to hide it? Or try to dumb it down because you don't want someone to be offended or you don't want someone not to like you? Jesus said, if you do that, I'm going to deny you before my Father. Now, if you've done that and you've repented, then you're, you're forgiven and you move forward with life. But there's going to be a lot of people that don't want to confess their faith because they're so concerned about how they'll be perceived. I saw this article the other day. You guys, most of you probably know who Chris Pratt is. Anybody not know who Chris Pratt is? Well, a lot of people don't know who Chris Pratt is. Guardians of the Galaxy, Parks and Recreation, a um, bunch of other stuff. Chris Pratt, great actor. Um, Christian, loves the Lord. I saw him do an interview, or not an interview, an acceptance speech at uh, the MTV Video Music Awards, not Video Music Awards, Movie Awards, um, three, four years ago. And basically he told everybody they needed to believe in Jesus. And this is on MTV. I've seen him do interviews. I've seen him all kinds of stuff. He met his wife, Katherine Schwarzenegger. And yeah, how many Schwarzeneggers could there be? Arnold is his father-in-law, which personally I think would be a little intimidating. But 
How do you, I mean, what, what's Thanksgiving like in that family? Pasta turkey. You know, I'm, yes, sir. But there's people who have tried to tell him to stop. So you've got to stop doing this. You're going to ruin your career. You're going to stop getting roles. You're going to have, you're going to get blacklisted by the Hollywood elite. And Chris Pratt's response was, no, I believe in Jesus. I'm going to keep telling people. Dude, nice. That's why I watch pretty much anything he does. I don't care what it is because I want to support him. Even, even the third Jurassic Park redo that was so bad. And you'd think, right, giant dinosaurs eating people, it's got to be a good movie. No, it wasn't. But we're no different. We can't let the fear of man hold us back from professing our faith in Christ because that becomes part of our identity. Really, us being in Christ is our identity. Right? I am, I am a husband and I am a father and I, I'm a pastor and I'm a bunch of other things, but that's not who I am. Who am I? I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. I am a follower of my master. My identity is found in who he is and what he's done for me. And then a profession of faith for ministry. Philemon, or Philemon, or however you want to pronounce it, Philemon. There's only one chapter in verses 4 through 7. Paul writes, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints, and I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Right? He heard of Philemon's, Philemon, Philemon's faith, that he was sharing his faith, and it was being effective profession of faith for ministry. The last thing Jesus says to this woman, daughter, be of good cheer. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. A couple of things to pay attention to. She had been ostracized. Now Jesus calls her daughter. You've got to think about that for a moment. She was nothing in Jewish culture. She was nothing in the, the Old Testament law belief system, right? Nothing. Her own parents wouldn't talk to her. If, like I said, husband or if she had children or her friends or her siblings, nobody. She couldn't go to the rabbi and ask to be prayed over. She couldn't do anything. And Jesus, like that, changed who she is. Changed her identity. No longer are you forgotten. No longer are you cast away. No longer are you despised. No longer will you be rejected. Now you are my child. In 1 John chapter, I wasn't planning on going there, so I got to go, I got to turn it off. I won't quote it right. 1 John chapter 3, um, we read, I'm only one page off, not bad. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, 
that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in himself, in him, sorry, purifies himself just as he is pure. What manner of love has been bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God? And you know what? We don't know what's going to happen, but this is what we do know. That as his children, when he's revealed, we're going to see him like he is, and we're going to be like him. Can you imagine? I don't think we even scratch the surface of the immensity of that truth. Well, yes, I'm adopted into the family of God, a co-heir with Christ. I am, I'm a child of God. I'm part of the family of God. It's, it's so wonderful. Think about that. The God of all things, right? There's only one. The creator of all things. The God who, the Bible tells us he holds the span, or the universe in the span of his hand. And best guess is it's 15 billion light years across. The vastness of our universe is beyond comprehension. And God can palm it like a basketball. And yet he knows every hair on your head. For some of us, he doesn't have to count quite as much. He knows all the stars of heaven and he calls them by name. The number of stars in heaven are beyond calculation. Yet he counts your heartbeats. David said that the thoughts that God has of us, each of us, not us as human beings, but each of us are more than the sands of the sea. And it would be enough, right? Much more than we could ever deserve to just be saved from his wrath. But it's not enough for his love. In his love, we have been made his children. And he looks at this woman who had lost all hope, who had lost all community, who had lost all of the faith she was raised with. And he says, daughter. That one word must have changed everything. He says, be of good cheer. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus can take torment and turn it into peace. He's the only one. And unfortunately, too many people try to find it elsewhere. You know, uh, well, we'll find it in the various things that people are seeking for their satisfaction. Wealth, career, status, money, pleasure, you name it. There's only one place we can go where torment can be turned into peace. And that's Jesus Christ. Verse 49. While he was still speaking. So right, this is in the middle of the sentence in verse 48. 
Someone came from the ruler of the synagogue's house saying to him, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher. But when Jesus heard it, he answered him saying, Do not be afraid. Only believe, and she will be made well. When he came into the house, he permitted no one to go in except Peter, James, and John, and the father and mother of the girl. And now all wept and mourned for her. But he said, Do not weep. She is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him, knowing that she was dead. But he put them all outside, took her by the hand, and called, saying, Little girl, arise. Her spirit returned, and she arose immediately. And he commanded that she be given something to eat, and her parents were astonished. But he charged them to tell no one what had happened. So I want you to take just a moment and put yourself in Jairus' sandals. He found Jesus. He begged Jesus. Jesus agrees to go with him. And on the way, some unclean woman pushes her way through the crowd, touches the tassel on his garment, and Jesus stops to have a conversation with her. Now imagine your anxiety. Right? All the while, Jesus, or sorry, all the while, while she, he's talk, Jesus is talking to this woman, Jairus is likely thinking, why is Jesus standing here talking to this woman? Why aren't we moving forward? Why aren't we getting to my house? Does, doesn't he know my daughter is at home dying? Yes, I understand. She's having a problem, but she's not dying. Right? She's been dealing with this for 12 years. She'll be fine for 15 minutes. Can we get to my house? Jesus, please, my daughter. And I'm imagining he didn't say it out loud. If he did, Luke didn't record it for us. But I'm just thinking Jairus is a guy like the rest of us. Or if you're a girl, you get what I mean. The whole purpose of him going to get Jesus was to bring him home. And Jesus stops and says, yeah, yeah I, I get it. Your daughter's dying, but I got I to gotta deal with this first. What? Huh? Who? Where? Please, Jesus, she'll be fine. Can we... coming to the end of it she's healed it's taken care of jesus is pronouncing over daughter go in peace your faith has made you well and jair singing finally now we can go and so he's in the middle of the sentence and he's looking all right what path do we get to my house and when he looks one of the members of his household comes walking over and maybe in the back of his mind, because he's an optimist, which I'm not, but maybe in the back of his mind, oh, maybe he's coming to tell me that she's doing okay. Or maybe he's just coming to ask me what's taking so long. Or, or who knows? But that's not what that person was coming to say. That person comes, and while Jesus is still speaking to the woman, this person says to Jairus, leave him alone, your daughter's dead. Now, Jesus heard this, and it would appear that Jesus did not give Jairus time to respond. But he answered, and there's five things that he says in the rest of this passage. Number one, do not be afraid, only believe, and she will be made well. This reminds me of the dad in Mark chapter 9, when, who asked Jesus to heal his son of a demon. In Mark 9, 23 through 24, Jesus said to him, if you can believe... All things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And I've always loved the honesty of this prayer, and I pray it often. 
We don't know what Jairus was thinking, but what was his response? He didn't argue. Jesus said, don't be afraid, only believe, and Jairus doesn't say anything. Mark eleven twenty four. we're told, by Jesus, I say to you, whenever things you ask when you pray, believe that you've received them and you will have them. Now, I don't believe that this means that if we pray hard enough, God is obligated to give me whatever I want. What it does mean is that when we place our faith in God, even when we struggle, we can ask him to help us. We can even ask him to help us to trust him when we ask us to help us. And when we do, he will answer. And he can answer by doing the impossible. He only allows Peter, James, and John in. Why? Because the law required two or three witnesses to confirm the validity of any event. Deuteronomy 19.15. The second thing Jesus said, Do not weep. She is not dead, but sleeping. We know she's dead. So is Jesus lying? Right, this is the first thing. Well, he knew she was dead. But Jesus isn't lying. In Romans 4.17, while speaking of Abraham, who had not had children yet, we read this. God says to him, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. So Jesus was not lying about whether or not the girl was alive or dead. He's calling into existence something that at that moment did not exist. At that moment, she was not alive, but Jesus was calling that life back into existence, and only God can do this. When we believe that God can do something that is impossible for everyone else, we will receive a similar response. They ridiculed him, literally laughed at him and scorned him. I've come to realize that when people laugh at God and mock him and or mock what he has done or can do, in the end, he will always prove them wrong. Romans 3, 4, let God be true and every man a liar. But have you ever been mocked for believing God for something and the people around you? I've even had it happen in church. Why would God's not going to do that? And sometimes, I don't know, I don't, I don't think I'm a lot like him. I just, I think, you know, he, he, he's put little bits of himself in all of us. And the moment somebody tells me I can't do something, what's the first thing I want to do? I want to prove them wrong. Every single time. And I kind of think that somebody, well, God can't do that, really? Because that's all it takes. They ridiculed him, and Jesus knew better. Third thing he said, little girl, arise. I've always loved the, the recording of those three words in Mark's gospel. Because in Mark 5, 41, little girl, arise is translated Talitha Kumi. Uh, I tried to convince my wife that we should name one of our daughters Talitha. Because it means little girl. Like, how cute would that be? I was shot down. Um, 1 Corinthians 15, 55 through 57 says, O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? 
The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. All Jesus had to do was speak. This is the power of God. This is the power of God's word, who Jesus is. Uh, John 1, 1 through 5 tells us this is his authority and victory over death, which would be consummated on the cross and with Jesus' resurrection. And my dear brothers and sisters, this same power lives in us. Romans 8, 9 through 11 says, You are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. And if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Now, he did not give us this power so that we could get our will done. But he gave us this power so that he could get his will done, both in our own lives and in the world around us. My brothers and sisters, we are sons and daughters of the King. Filled with the very God of the universe dwelling inside each of us by his spirit, we have to stop walking around like paupers. I'm not saying we are all going to be wealthy. This has nothing to do with money. But we walk around thinking nothing but awful things about ourselves, and sometimes we should. Don't get me wrong, I know what goes on in my head. But day by day, we each need to get out of bed remembering one very simple thing. We are children of God. Adopted into his family. Made co-heirs with our Savior Jesus Christ. And filled with the Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. It doesn't mean that you, know, you can wave your hand and, and knock people over. It doesn't mean you can wave your hand and make money appear out of nowhere. If any of you have that gift, let me know. I want a boat. No, I don't. I don't want a boat. Uh, but we have to stop acting like we're not that. You know, we don't go out in our own pride and in our own confidence, but we can live our lives as children of the king. Fourth thing, he commands that she be given something to eat. Uh, and I know it may feel like a bit of a stretch, but I see here the fact that God cares for the whole person. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 23, it says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our spirit, our spiritual well-being, right, beginning with our salvation, our soul, our mental and emotional well-being, and our body, our physical well-being. Jesus had dealt with all three for the family by raising this child from the dead, right? He had dealt with their spiritual, emotional, and then her physical well-being, but it wasn't quite enough because he knew she was hungry. So he made sure that was taken care of as well. And I bring that up because... We know, for those of us who have kids, that it's easy to want to make sure that every little thing in their life is okay. Want to make sure that they have the clothes they need or the food they need or the, or the care they need or whatever it might be. God is no different with us. Going back to that whole honesty thing and praying with what's in us that we talked about earlier. 
We, we have to get out of our head that God only wants to hear about the big stuff. You know, all right, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to definitely pray about this because I have a family member who's been diagnosed with cancer, right? That's big. That's worth praying about. But, you know, the, the, the day-to-day stuff or this little tiff I'm having over here or this bill that I, I, I'm struggling to pay, God doesn't really care about that. Yes, he does. Right here, God cared about getting this child a cupcake. All right, I know that's not in the Bible. It doesn't say cupcake. But come on, you're raised from the dead. I think a cupcake is the appropriate snack. With a candle, yes, yeah, like a birthday, isn't it? But God cares about the little things. So we can bring it all to him. The fifth thing Jesus said is that he charged them to... To tell no one what had happened. I'm trying to think of a way I could make that stick. I just spelled it wrong. He told people to tell no one what had happened. Usually I catch that stuff. Anyways, um, her parents were astonished, astounded, and amazed, which why wouldn't he be or they be, right? Their daughter was dead. Now she's not. That's a big deal. But why didn't he want this spread? And we see him say this multiple times, and it's simply because his hour had not yet come. John 2, 4, John 7, 30, right? It wasn't time yet for everybody to know. A lot of people knew. And did anybody, when he said, don't tell anybody about what happened, did anybody listen? No. But he was trying to keep a few things under wraps just because it wasn't quite time yet. This is the second resurrection we've seen in the book of Luke. First was the widow of Nain, uh, her son back in Luke 11, and now this one. I do think it's interesting, though. We're given the opposite charge, aren't we? Jesus said, all right, don't tell anybody. What did he tell us? Go tell everybody. Let's close. Two people here filled with death, desperate faith. A man whose child lay at death's door and a woman who was ostracized alone and suffering for 12 years. Yet there is only one solution to whom both could come. And that, of course, is Jesus. So maybe today you're seeking a healing. Maybe it's physical. Maybe it's spiritual. Maybe it's emotional. Maybe it's a response. You're, you're seeking God for a response to some huge prayer request or a small prayer request. Maybe you're praying for somebody else. Maybe you're praying for yourself. Maybe you're asking for direction and guidance and wisdom. Maybe you're asking, uh, we studied Elijah on Wednesday. Maybe you're like Elijah at this moment. You're like, I just want to be left alone. I don't know what it is. But whatever the case, wherever we're coming from, whatever our background, whatever we need God to step in and help us with, there's only one solution. Now, it may not happen in our timing, which I think we get to learn from Jairus, right? Because if it happened in Jairus' timing, Jesus would have sent the crown array and ran to the house. Right? It might not happen in our timing. And it might not happen our way. Right? What did the woman want? She wanted to touch his garment and go away. She didn't want to talk in front of the crowd. She didn't want to be called out on what had happened. She didn't want to be noticed. So maybe it doesn't happen in our timing, and maybe it doesn't happen in our way, but we can trust that God is at work. And if we don't understand it, or we don't like it, or even if we are hoping for a different 
outcome than what we actually get. His love and grace for us does not change. And it's in the times when we struggle like that, when we don't understand, or we don't like it, or we want something different, or whatever it might be. It's in those times we can cry out, Father, I believe, help my unbelief. And I can promise you that he will. And not because I'm smart, but because the Bible says so. So two questions I'm going to close with, and we're done. First one, and I ask it every week, and I will continue to ask it every week, have you come to know Jesus as Savior? For anybody here listening, listening to the recording later, go to our website. Let us know if you need any help with this, because the same power that raised Jesus from the dead could be at work in your life if you would surrender to him. Number two. What work are you desperate for God to do in your life? It's a good question. Maybe you want God to do a work in you. Maybe you're praying God will do a work in your spouse or in another family member. Maybe you're asking for God to do a work at your work or at your community or in our church or whatever. But my question is, what are you desperate for before God? You ever think about that question? I do. I think about the things that I am desperate for God to work in. Then I have to ask myself the next question, am I trusting him to do it? (laughs) I don't want to answer that one. You've heard me say it many times, fear and faith are mutually exclusive. And when we're afraid, and I don't say this to point fingers or to judge, because I do it too, But what we're afraid of is usually very indicative of where we are failing to trust God. I'm not not pointing fingers at all. Yeah, you're failing. I'm doing it right now. Okay, maybe not at this exact moment, but it'll happen before the day's over, I promise. But we can bring that to him. We can even bring our lack of faith to him, and he'll answer Isn't that great? We have a pretty awesome God. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that we can bring anything and everything to you. Whether it's big or it's little, we can trust because your word has told us so that you are at work. We can be confident of this very thing, that you who have begun a good work in us will complete it unto the day of Christ Jesus. And Lord, so I pray for myself and for my brothers and sisters and anybody who's listening that whatever it is we are desperate for you to do in our lives, God, please do it. Do the things that only you can do so that only you get glory. In Jesus' name, amen.